Good morning and welcome to Wanda's Picks, a Black Arts and Cultural Program of the African Sisters Media Network. And we are so excited to have in the studio this morning a wonderful author and, gosh, um, motivational speaker and survivor, wonderful, awesome survivor. Um, thank you so much, Regina Louise, for, for joining us to talk about your newest book, Someone Has Led This Child to Believe, and your film that's going to be released next year. Hi. Thank you. Hi. Oh, no problem. No problem. I'm so happy, you know, to to know about your work. Um, wow, your journey has, has really been uh, really tremendous. Um insofar as, you know, what you've overcome. And why don't you could tell tell our audience a little bit about um your work, um, your your two books, um, but the more recent one, Someone Has Led This Child to Believe. Right. Well, someone. And originally the books were meant to be a two part you know, a uh, two part book, but given what happened once somebody, someone was released, some of the occurrences that happened as a result of my writing that book, I was unable to deliver on the the second version of that book. So it took me 16 years to be exact to, to recompose my sense of self to a place where I could actually write from wholeness and have an ability to reflect. So my first book, I would say, is more like a confession. I remember the day that I escaped the people who were abusing me. And I remember in my first editing, I turn around, tell on you, one day I'm going to tell. So I think that book is just that. This book, Someone Has Led This Child to Believe, I, I, I become... My character, who is obviously the narrator because it's memoir, I become more understanding, more informed, and I take responsibility as well as met out what I believe is the the, the, the kind of forgiveness and compassion I'm able to give at this point. And and I also reflect. I, I come at it with more of a adult-like, reflective view, understanding my mother's plight, understanding my father's plight, understanding that I literally was raised by sharecroppers. So historically, generationally, realistically, these people had conditions heaped upon them that would not necessarily for me at that time in my life. So I had to look at their circumstances and not to see myself from a, from a victim perspective, but a more informed, a more robust perspective. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, um, you were brought up in the, uh, the foster care system, and uh, at one point you were um, – a parent came for a potential parent came forward, uh, an adult that wanted to adopt you and 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 was denied. Wanted you to talk about you mentioned forgiveness, um, and uh, and I, I hadn't realized that November was 
is it Adoption uh, Awareness Month? Yes, National Adoption Month. Right, right. Yeah, I wish I wish um, I would have known, but next year <laughs> I'll, I'll have you on in November as opposed to December. But it's never. Um, I mean, it's always important to talk about our children who need families, particularly right. children that aren't aren't babies and children that are black, because you know when you look at sort of you know sort of what's what the market market wants, and it's not black babies. And and so our children, they stay in these, you know, these systems, and a lot of times the people that are taking care of them don't love them too long. And so as long as you could talk about about your experience in the foster care system and and the adoption story, because it's it's really sweet, you know, what how it ended up. Mm. Well, I I grew up in the Bay Area for a minute. My father back in the 70s, worked for Barry White and was becoming quite successful in his own right as an independent artist. Uh, His name was Tom Brock. And he, you know, he sort of like he found out about me when I was about 11. And he wasn't ready for it, but he tried. He he had, you know, my, my vile mother, who I lived with very, very, very briefly, sent me to live with him. But it just so happened to be that his album was was coming out around the same time. And I try and put myself in his shoes as this beautiful African-American man who has, who's a prodigy in his own right. And his album comes out with the sexiest, sultriest singer on the planet, other than maybe Teddy Pendergrass, right, very white. So he's getting his moment that Lord knows he had to, Big still and borrow to get. So I get it. Yet he learns out learns about me, and here I am, this needy, you know, mini version of him. And he has no idea what to do with all that. And he has his wife and his little children, and his Norwegian wife and his little children and their little children. So you know, he he wasn't quite ready for me, and I get it. I wasn't quite ready for him. So, and I was what people would call precocious. I had a, a fierce spirit of standing up for what I knew was right. And I knew that people didn't want me, and I knew there was something not right about that. So, you know, I, I tried not to take it too personally and just move on. You don't like me. You don't want to be around me. I don't want to be around you either. So my father, I came up with a business plan. I knew he didn't want me. I just said, I'll go stay with a friend. And why don't you, mom, to take care of me? That way you can go do what you want. And he agreed. But she stopped paying, and she wasn't having it. So all that churchiness and all that, you know, Jesus saved mentality, she had kind of went out the back door when his check stopped coming. And she took it out on me, and then I had to not let her take it out on me, and I had to escape her. She abused me pretty terribly, but I had to try and fight her back against all my morals, you know, of honor thy mother and my father. And I saw her as a surrogate so and an adult, and I grew up in the South, so you don't hit, you know. They can, they can nearly kill you, but you don't strike an elder. But anyway, I had to break one of my golden rules and stop her from breaking me. And I jumped from a two-story house, turned myself into the police department, they took me to the Martinez Children's Shelter. I had no idea it was the day before my 13th birthday. 
I arrived in Martinez, and my life would forever be different. And there was a white woman there who, over time, you know, learned to care for me. And as a result, I fell in love with her, and I just wanted her to be my mom. All I wanted was for love. I didn't care what color she was. I didn't care about any of that. I wanted the attunement, the connecting, the blending. I wanted someone who had the means of spirit even just to listen to my dreams for five minutes and validate that what I wanted for myself was a possibility. And she did that. And I also want to note here that in an effort to not throw my own mother under the bus, I think what I've had to learn over the years is I could not have accepted Jean's love, that's the name of the counselor who, who I mm-hmm. attached to, I could have never accepted her love if, in fact, I had not been loved first. So that's a testament to my own mother, whom I don't believe, I don't believe, I don't remember, rather, when she may have loved me. I don't remember any of that. Who taught me to tell time, tie my shoes, count? I don't remember any of that. But I do know that love is learned in a, in a particular state. It, love is learned state-bound. It's state-bound. And depending upon the state in which we learn to love is what shows up. It shows up in the patterns in which we learned it. So I can say, given that I believe that, that my mother loved me fiercely. And mm-hmm. as a result, I was able to allow this woman to love me fiercely, and I was able to attach fiercely. So when she wanted and her petition to adopt me was denied because I'm black and she's white, you can believe that that care was fierce, and my response to it was fierce. And so much so that it became the axis, that loss became the axis upon which I would, would design my life around. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's really beautiful about just there had to be love for you to recognize love. Um something, you know, even if you don't you can't articulate it, um you believe that it you know, it, it existed. Um and a friend of mine she has a poem and she talks about uh I was created in love and love is what I am and I just love mm. To, to, to hear her say that, like it's it's her outgoing mm-hmm. message on her phone, uh, Sister Makita, right? And uh, and it's just like, yeah, yeah, right. It's so affirming. I, mean, mm-hmm. I can remember one day. I speak a lot, lot, lot. I love it. I, you know, mm-hmm. I was on stage one day, and I, I I had a shift in my thinking, and the shift was, wait a minute force himself upon my mother and then I am the result of a non-consensual relationship. That's not how I came to be, if nothing Mm -hmm. else. It's important for me to recognize the moment that I was conceived, that the, 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 the circumstances were, there was this beautiful athlete who saw this beautiful young girl and they wanted one another. So at the very least, when those two people made the decision to 
consummate that attraction, I am the result of that. I am the result of two brilliant, brilliant people manifesting their brilliance in me. I've learned to reframe the narrative that would take me down the street. I was a product of a illegitimacy. I'm the product of a one night. We could go on down that dark road, or Mm -hmm. I can really call it what it is and what it was, and what it was was that. And I am magnificent. I am a magnificent soul. I was born from magnificence, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I'm just looking at, you know, the beautiful cover of your book, you know, the flowers and the flower petals. It's just, and you're really beautiful as well. Um, and and I just wanted to ask you um, if if maybe you could share something from your book uh, with, with the audience. Oh, that's a nice thing to Yes, hold on. I'll share with you while I'm looking for what I want. I'll share with you one thing about what you said about the book cover, which is very interesting. The book cover things I want to say and keep it real, and I can't keep it as real as I really want to, but I will say this. or I, Unless you're Michelle Obama, mm-hmm. Black people's faces on the cover of their own memoirs apparently don't sell. And that's a heartbreaking thought. And unless you're a celebrity and your platform is just built in from ground zero, apparently, you know, focus groups have said that to put black people on the cover of their own book is to give the book Sort of this, it's 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 death model, and it, it breaks my heart to even say that. But I know that you know, and I imagine your audience knows, you know, the forces that 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 are historically rooted in you know the the ignoring or the you know the marginalizing of the African American body, person, spirit. Mm-hmm. So. Right. With that in mind, with that in mind, I think it. I would be remiss if I didn't note that because it's important for us to understand how people see us, think about us, and you know, it's really important to to know these things. And I figure I, I want to be a pioneer in every way to help people see what it means to be black and how important it is to author ourselves, self-author ourselves, regardless of of how we're viewed through this hegemony perspective. So with that killer cover is a result of Diner reading a passage in my book where I'm devastated. I, I'm an adult at this point, and I'm completely devastated as a result of something that happened. And what I want to do is go back to when I was a child. And the only way I knew to deal with or externalize my pain was to hurt myself. Because I grew up with people who said, shut the F up before I give you something to cry for, as if 
whatever mm-hmm. I was crying for wasn't enough for me to be crying for. So they wanted to trump the reasons and, you know, just complicate matters. So I learned to, to when, when you talk to a child that way, there's a chance that that child will internalize your own hate. So in a lot of ways, what my abuser did was set me up to swallow my own rage, swallow my own hate, and to internalize it and to, to, to squelp, snub my voice, and basically just to become mute. So when I had this incident, I was, in my, I was uh, 39, almost 40, and, and, and what I did is I, I internalized the disappointment. I internalized the rejection, and what I wanted to do is to go back to what I would have done, as I said, when I was a little girl. I wanted to hurt myself. So Hmm. what I say in the book is I wanted to push my – I wanted to get – my therapist had asked me, hey, Gina, I understand you had an experience, and how are you feeling? Because back then, because I had no adults, nobody to turn to, my therapist Mm -hmm. would allow me if I had difficulties, to just call and leave a message in her answering machine just so I'd have a way to get out verbally because, as you can tell by now, I'm quite loquacious. She wanted me to have a place to, to, to put my feelings. So anyway, she had checked her messages. We set up a time for me to come in, and she said, So, Gina, I understand you had this experience. What did it feel like? And, of course, I hated that. And I'm like, What the F do you think it felt like? I wanted to get mm. naked, and I wanted to push my nakedness through a wall of rosebush thorns to bleed the want for a parent, to bleed the want for belonging, to, ble- to bleed the want for being loved out of my body. Okay? So mm. when the designer read that, she oh. took a wall of roses. And someone has led this child to believe. So she took a wall of roses and she took the title. And what she is doing is pushing that title through a wall of roses. And so Mm. what we get is we all come into this world according to our own beliefs, according to our own story lines, our own story rhythms. And Some of us are fortunate enough to have one parent, maybe two, maybe an entire community, maybe a legacy of generations. But all of them have their rhythms and tunes. And then some of us force ourselves into existence. And in so doing, we have to bleed. We have to get cut. It's raw. It's visceral. It's so that you share has always wanted to be here and has always been willing to do it by any means necessary. Even mm. if it means to be sliced a thousand times. My mm. spirit wants to be here. So here we are. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah, um I haven't I haven't read your books yet, but they are definitely on my list for reading once I, I finish this semester. And um, I just, you know, wow, it's 
to be able to share such a story with, uh, you know, a world audience. Yeah, um, and so eloquently as well. Well, if I don't, if I don't, who will? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. there are, you know, there are at least 365,000 African-American children awaiting a family in foster care, Wanda. And those kids look like you and me, Mm -hmm. okay? These are black babies of every every shade. You know how we come in every Mm -hmm. shade and try to go and get our kids. And and with that, I want to read this from... With that said, I want to read this little piece from the from the prologue of my newest book, Someone Has Led This Child to Believe, and I love this prologue. I was sitting in a hotel down in Palo Alto right off of university, and I like mm-hmm. to go away sometimes and write because I don't like to, to conjure up the spirits of my past in my house because then they don't uh. want to go when I want to close the book or the or the computer. They want to stay and hang out. And not everybody yeah. wants to be bothered with all this, <laughs> mm-hmm. not, right? And so they don't always like to go when I want them to go, so I take them to a hotel and they can stay once I'm gone. But anyway, I'm, mm-hmm. I wrote this prologue. My 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 uh, publisher, editor said, we need something for the front of the book. And this is what what arrived, and it's in the prologue. Throughout my journey, I have met thousands of children and youth who are biting their childhoods away in out-of-home care and foster care, wondering what will become of them and wanting to know how to traverse the course they're on. From group homes to fictive kin homes, from transitional housing programs to emancipated young people with no place to land, these children are doing what they can to just get another day, something to thrive more than others. While there have been many who felt they can't afford to dream beyond an inch of their breath. This is the task. This is the task of anyone who carries the burden of his or her own unworthiness. To learn to give one's own self merciful favor while standing in the blistering heat of a primal wound to seek refuge within one's own heart and to wipe someone else's fatalistic narrative of what their life will be from their conscience, hand it back to the disbeliever and say, I believe this belongs to you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, I was just wondering um, how how you ended up having a therapist because um, I know a lot of children who need um, psychological help don't always get it. More often they don't get it. And, and so I was just wondering how, how you happened to have gotten that kind of assistance, um, you know, in this journey um, considering, you know, the trauma that you experienced. And I was just wondering if you could um, talk a little bit about that because I was just reading um, in some of my notes that um, that your journey your journey includes um, 
you know, navigating through charity, foster care homes, and psych wards in California, and and then the whole term around throwaway child and and someone, you know, sort of telling you that um, that your vision for yourself was not the vision that um, that the people around you were having for you. Um, it's almost like Cinderella, only it's not a fairy tale. Um, it, it, you know. Yeah, yeah. And so you could tell us a little bit about that as well as um, before we close, and this is another thing, and I could say it again if I need to, um, you know, with the whole thing around immigration uh, and separating children from their parents, um, and, and this happened also during, you know, after Hurricane Katrina, you know, children were separated from their parents, and I mean, Children that don't that couldn't speak yet. So how are you going to connect this child with the parent if the child has no language, um, or a child is a you know um, really young? So anyhow, I just wanted you to talk about that a little bit as well. Well, okay, that's a, that's a, I think I tracked you. So in terms of <laughs> therapy, yeah, that was a, yeah, I got it. So in terms okay. of therapy, I think if I had to, if someone were to ask me. What was the biggest, best gift I received from the foster care system in my journey? I would say permission to heard many, many, many people say that as African-American people, we don't believe in therapy. We don't want to tell people our stories. We don't believe in that. And, okay, I hear that, and I don't believe that. <clears throat> Excuse me. So for me, I I love therapy. I've been in therapy for 30-plus years. Wait, no. I've been in therapy off and on for 40 years. Therapy taught me mm-hmm. to reparent myself. Therapy for me was about having a mirror, someone who could mirror my importance, my humanity, someone who taught me compassion, someone who taught me how to stay, someone who taught me to broaden my capacity to stay with incredibly difficult feelings, incredibly difficult realities, incredibly just incredible difficulties of what it means to be human, what it means to be black, what it means to be a woman, what it means to at one point have been poor, an orphan. I mean, I had so many, so many qualities that that negatively patinaed my essence, if you will. And so I needed someone to teach me how to be with all that, put it in a context, and learn to stay. He was for me. It gave me permission to to inhabit and live more fully from the essence of me. It gave me a sense of felt self. So I had my first therapist when I was probably 13, and I am 50-plus. And I, like I said, I've had a therapist in, in, to, to some degree my, for the better part of the 40 years of my life, and I wouldn't change anything about that. So I think I want people to run and get one, to run and get one. And if you don't run and get one, <laughs> you know, it, it, it would be to anybody's uh, betterment, I think. You know, not that I'm prescribing that, but I think to, for more, to a more or less degree, I think that we can all find something 
from being engaged and in attunement with another human being, and, and it doesn't matter how long. So that's still on therapy. In terms of this issue of, of what's amazing is during National Adoption Month, I was not able to get media for them. I love that. But it was interesting that it was difficult for me to get media around my newest book, in, in relationship and connection with foster care in African-American children. But I was able to get CNN because I was going to talk about children detained at the border. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I didn't turn it down, although to me I am not advocating for children detained at the border. I don't believe in it. But that doesn't mean I want to advocate for it either because I feel that I don't want to to be that person that that switches my affinity to the hottest new subject of the moment. Children have been dispossessed for centuries. It is a cultural practice here in America. So my heart of hearts is with the children who people so easily will want to erase, so easily want to turn a blind eye to. In that language, and it's a $65 billion industry, and it is the cradle to the prison pipeline, and it is also fuels the foster care industrial complex. So, yeah, those children who are detained at the border, I'm terribly sorry, and my heart goes out to them. And, yes, children separated from their families, there should be no delineation, no line that delineates what that is about. However, when we have to deal with race and class as transactional pieces, then I'm going to advocate for the ones that look like me. You know, there's a movie that just came out called uh, Instant Family, and I got to tell you, girl, I, Mm -hmm. again, you know, I'm not here to say I don't stand for you know, Latin Americans, Chicanos, Chicanos. No, that's not what I'm saying, but I'm not, that's not me. Privilege or I don't have any of what they stand for. But what I am about is where's that little black girl that's languishing in foster care, that little black boy that's most likely, most probably going to grow up and, and both the black girl and the black boy are going to be, be consumers of recidivism. They're more likely to have children that are going to end up in those same systems to keep them going, be that welfare, be that uh, 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 child services. So for me, I'm sitting there, I'm looking at this movie, and I'm thinking, wow, really? Really? Are you kidding me? Mm -hmm. Hispanic children represent the least demographic in the foster care system. And you mean to tell me that We've come this far to only once again turn the other cheek. There's another movie called The Moon that is used for training foster parents. I train foster parents. I pull up the movie to show it in the training about this little mm-hmm. white girl being removed from a family, and she ends up with a black foster mother. You want to know what almost every single black dad in that room, they were like, I posed the question, wow, isn't it interesting that, African-American children disproportionately are representative in foster care, yet all these movies are about white kids, Latin kids. It's, we turn the eye, and this is what every person in that room said. Well, probably nobody would watch it if it was about a black child. So that mm-hmm. nearly broke my heart. 
And I said, you know what? Oh, no. So I'm here to let you know, Wendy, my movie, I Am Somebody's Child, which will air in April 2019. I'm here to be representative of it. Finally, finally, this little black girl will have her say. You understand Mm -hmm. what I'm saying? It's like I fought for 16 years to have this movie turned into a national PSA about how our children get dispossessed. And I will say this thing, the border having common with the little black children that are in foster care is I was, they used a chemical straitjacket on me, basically pumped me full of drugs. I had withdrawals that were akin to Parkinson's. They wanted to, to give me a mental lobotomy. That's what's happening to children we have in common other than our common humanity. And to think that 30 years ago, that's how I was being treated, to have a want, to have a desire, to believe I belong. And that's what the children at the border are having to contend with. No, but yes. there are no adults on Excuse me, Regina. Sorry, um, my other yes. guests have been in the studio for about five minutes, and I don't right. want them to go away. But, wow, we definitely have to have another conversation because – you just getting rolling. Um, and, and thank you. Thank you so much for the specificity of, of the story um, because there are a lot of things we can do to, to, to rescue our children. And, and I'd like for us to talk about that next time, what people can do um, to get involved um, and, and be able to save our kids. But in the meantime, could you give our audience your website uh, and, and so that they can get a copy of Someone Has Led This Child to Believe as well as Somebody, Someone, which is going to be made into a movie, yeah. which you said is going to be out April 2019. If you want to, you know, keep in touch with me, my website is www.iamreginalouise.com. On Instagram, my Instagram handle is the real Regina Louise. And one last thing, Wendy, I want to say this. If you Wanda. all want to do something, Wanda, I'm sorry. Wanda, if you all would like to do something for children in foster care this Christmas, go to onesimplewish.com and grant the wish of a child in foster care. I'm in love with this new organization. I just found it last night, onesimplewish.com, and grant a child a wish for the holiday because they don't have it like we have it. All righty. Well, you have a good rest of the All day, right. and, and thank you so you much, too. and congratulations on your on your your film and the book and and your I don't know your your work as as a champion for justice. I really appreciate it for our babies. Thank you. All right. Peace and blessings. Oh, uh, good morning, Dante Clark and Dr. Khalid Akil White. Thanks for hanging in there. How are both of you doing? Fantastic. Thank you. Oh, excellent, excellent. Dante? Yes, ma'am. I am well. How are you today? Oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. Congratulations, Dante, on your first book, No Freedom, uh, and your, you. your, your gala on Sunday in Richmond at the Richmond Post at the Bridge Art Space, 23 Main Avenue. And um, what is the time again on that? Three to six. 3 to 6 p.m. Yeah, people can get a deal on the book, right? Oh, uh, yes, ma'am. <laughs> Besides getting your signature. Yeah, awesome, awesome. Yeah, so I'm going to um, 
I was going to um, maybe um, let you all talk to us about how how you happen to, to meet each other, but uh, Dr. White, thanks so much for joining us, and it's really great to have you on again after talking about that wonderful uh, Black Fatherhood movie that you um, screened. Um, I guess was it, I'm trying to remember, what month did you do that? It was this year, right, or was it last year that we yeah. spoke? Well, we've been screening this so much, Wanda. Uh, I forget exactly <laughs> which month you and I uh, talked about it, but thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure to be on again, and um, yeah. it's a pleasure to be here with uh, with Dante. Yeah, the support yeah. of Dante. And, yeah. Right, right. And um, you are. Um, I was trying to find a bio for you, and so hopefully this mm-hmm. works. I went to your um, your LinkedIn. <laughs> okay. And it says that you're an educator, an author, a filmmaker, owner. Um, at um, blkmpwr.com uh, mm-hmm. is it black black how do you pronounce it black male black oh. empower black, black empower. empower right yeah yes, yeah I love the way you um, you spell it <laughs> Thank you. and um, <laughs> and um, uh, San Francisco Bay Area uh, educator in higher education um, you're currently at uh, San Jose City College are you still there. Yes, I am. Okay, and previously you were at San Jose State University uh, mm-hmm. and uh, San Mateo County Juvenile Probation Department, and you mm-hmm. are a Morehouse man. I am, yeah, I am. Yeah. I am all and, those and the man, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and the man of the hour, Dante, is a poet from Richmond, California, whom you used to teach and mentor, and you still teach, well, you still mentor, uh, who uses his art to serve humanity as a documentarian. He captures the hardships of black life while also bringing all listeners a step closer to know freedom. With layers of complex rhythm and harmony, Dante has the ability to stop hearts with his intensive performances and his poetry is so stunning that his audience is left feeling as if they are on the brink of a revolution. (laughs) Wow. So, Dante, you know, you're going to have to, like, just give us a poem now after all that. (laughs) <laughs> uh, being born black bearing blues by brothers buried beneath bridges burned bodies but little before becoming better beyond broken but believing that I am a walking prayer negro spiritual cry from a broken heart that bled obsidian trying not to be a cup that's bitter sip on bed table absent of soul food in the kitchen out of reach from grandma's hands in some trap house section eight miles away from life that's living I want to empty out, be baptized in honey, and drip for eternity. Well, something. Wow. That's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Snap, snap, snap. <laughs> so um, how do you all know each other? Tell us, tell us the story. Give us the history. And, I'll let and, Brother White. And, Okay. All right, brother White. Yeah. Okay. Um, when I, you know what, I was, I probably thinking back. It was about 2004, and I had um, got, and well, I had gained employment at a program that was based in Richmond, California, called the Making Waves Program. And um, in that program, it took a number of different, um, you know, black and brown youth from that area and put them in an after school. Um, process or program and it also helped them get into private and parochial schools and lo and behold I got 
um, assigned to a number of the different, you know, young black males that were in the ninth grade that year, and one of which happened to be Dante Clark. And so um, that was 2004. He was on my caseload. I had to chase him all around, you know, high schools and, and after school and, and, you know, in school, people, he was going to school in Oakland at one point. He was going to school in Richmond at one point. And, um, you know, to, to make a long story short, we just developed a rapport from from then, and um, you know Dante was a different Dante than he is now. He was a he was a kid then. He's a you know an adult now with a little bit more um, in a different direction, I would say. And so you know, I just felt like man, with him and with some of the other young young uh, men that I and women too that I got a chance to to um, to work with in that program, I just tried to impart a little bit of you know my own knowledge and wisdom and try to direct them. But we had just kept in touch and developed a friendship and developed a relationship that lasted beyond my time of making waves and his time of making waves. And, um, you know, we just, we stayed in contact. We would kind of hang out, talk here, there, and we still do. And um, now just to see him blossom and bloom into this poet, activist, author, actor, and this, you know, this international, yeah. this international guy. It's like, man, this is this is just awesome to see that. So anyway, um, yeah, we you know we got connected when when he and I both were young. I think he was probably fourteen, fifteen. I was twenty four, twenty three, twenty five, mm-hmm. somewhere in there. So mm-hmm. it's been a you know relationship over ten plus years, probably close to fifteen now. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, just to see. Just being able to see his growth, it's like, man, this is this is a testament to why you don't give up on our young men. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. yeah. Our young children. Mm-hmm. Our young, yeah. our young yeah. men and young women too. Now let me not. I don't want right. to genderize it. Our children, our youth. This is why you. This is why you invest in the youth to see these mm-hmm. returns on you know the investments. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Certainly. So Dante um, uh, and and uh. Brother White, um, talk about, you know, this whole thing around no freedom. And, and, and uh, Dante, we had this great conversation earlier this week about the title and how this is part one. And and this is your first book. And we're like, really? Like, I mean, you know, because you're just like so out there, you know, with, you know, Tay's Harmony and, and you know, you're, you're ready, you're, you're on, you're like, you're a star in a, in a series, and they're getting ready to have what the second season now. Um, you have to tell like yes, tell folks what that season is so that they can watch you. Um, but you're like a superstar. So, um, so, and this is your first book, and and you 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 know this whole powerful thing like no freedom, like wow, how do you know freedom? So talk about sort of you know this collection and it being part one and your career and how you finally settled down to be able to like put these poems in a book. <laughs> mm. And why and why okay. 2018? Um, you know, like why now as opposed to you know last year or next year? Mm. It's it's so many different directions I could go in, so I'm gonna try to make these like like uh points um so the the web series that that you were speaking about is called the north pole show um the first season is on youtube and it's on the website on uh, northpoleshow.com and it's about gentrification in north oakland it's a political comedy we just finished filming the second season um uh, which will be possibly airing this uh upcoming season in the spring summertime so look out for that 
the title No Freedom. Um, short story is I, I was I was doing a lot of touring um, last year with the film Romeo is Bleeding, um, the documentary, which is about the play that we had wrote back in 2012-13, uh, Romeo and Juliet at Richmond, California. And so I was on the East Coast and during the South, I was going to a lot of different schools and colleges and talking to young people and in uh, these penitentiaries and uh, juvenile detention centers, and the young people was asking me, like, man, you a powerful writer, powerful performer. Do you have anything, like any books out or something that's published that we can read? And I'm like, you know, I've been thinking about writing a book over the years, but I just wasn't – I didn't feel motivated to do it at the time. But the more I kept talking to these youngsters, especially that was in penitentiary, was asking me for a book because they would love to read it. That that touched me, and it was like, all right, I'm about to start working on that now. Mm-hmm. So that was last mm-hmm. year around this time, and so I started thinking about what would I want to say. What I have a lot of poems, a lot of songs, a lot of stories. I'm like, but what do I want to say? I want it to be a statement and not just a collection of my poetry. And so as I was just doing my daily routine, and I was just thinking, and I was like, everything that we have been doing as black people has been to to figure out how to navigate through the system to get to a place where we know freedom, whether that's financially, educational-wise, physically, or whatever it is that we're trying to do, we all trying to know freedom. And then from that idea, I was like, well, a lot of my poems fit that theme of us navigating through the system to know what freedom is. And Some of us have no freedom. So I was looking at no freedom, the word K-N-O-W, but it's also when you say it, it sounds like N-O. So I'm like, that's a beautiful concept that I want to play with, this idea of no freedom. We all are on a journey to no freedom, but in the end, we have found no freedom. And so I wanted to put that as a title um, to just to jumpstart it. And then I start collecting the poems that I've written and performed over the years, some I've written and never performed, and then I wrote new pieces to just add to the collection and make it a volume one because I feel like, this is just to raise the conversation that I would like to talk about whenever I perform or whenever I tour and moving forward from all of my past projects. is like all of those were me capturing those moments that I was in, but now I want to really elevate a conversation because I feel like a lot of us as black folks, we all are comfortable in some sense of where we are in life, but until we are all free, nobody is free. And so that's what I want to raise with this first volume and then the second, third, and whatever comes afterwards will highlight that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's talk about freedom, how we stay free and how do we know we're free. Well, maybe should, how do we know we're free and then if we are really free, uh, <laughs> how do we stay free? And this is for both of you. I can go uh, first. I feel I feel like it's 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 so many different layers to it, um, and I think that's the part of the illusion is when we attain mm-hmm. one thing, we think, oh, we good now, but we then mm-hmm. fig- figure out we are affected by other areas. So I I, I try to peel it back and go to the basics. Um, it's, I feel like it's two emotions or it's two things that that governs everything. It's fear and love. If you do anything out of anger, it's because you um you have no understanding and you are afraid of something, and that makes you feel uncomfortable. So you're either sad about it or you become angry, and anger is just hiding the fear. You know what I mean? So it's either you are afraid or you move in love, and if you move in love, then you're peace, you're kind, you're giving, you're empathetic, you're not selfish. You don't have a need to win a competition. It's like if I win, we all win. If we all win, I win. So if you move with love, then you are in a place of freedom. Because most of us don't move in that place 
then we will never know freedom. And everything we do is fear-based. You know what I mean? Like, for an example, we all have car alarms. We have house alarms because we are afraid of somebody breaking in our house. If you have to live in fear, then how can you say that you're free? And I don't care what house you live in. If it's a big mansion or a shack, if you feel like you have to protect these material things more than you are concerned about protecting your life or making sure that somebody out there has what they need so they won't even feel the need to break in your house. So that means you're. if this person is oppressed, then how can you be free? Because they're going to come steal from you. So that just just to make it basic like that, I'm like, we all live in fear, then we no one knows freedom. And then as far as the black community, I feel like it's so much trauma in our community that it's hard for us to really move in love with one another because on one hand, um, we don't want to identify with that struggle because now we feel responsible of sharing the little piece of pie that we have or we feel like we have to be in competition with this person because it's only a certain amount of slices and if this person get one, it's not going to be enough for me. And until we change that mentality, us as black people, we will never be free. And I feel like the first step towards that is once we start to be our step towards our independence from depending on this uh, capitalistic, uh, European, Eurocentric, westernized mindset. And once we start getting back to ourselves, then we'll be a step closer to knowing what that freedom is. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, Brother White. You see how deep this young man is? Yes, yes, I do. I don't have I don't have a, a follow up to that, but um you know that I think that's so well that's so well said. Um I would just say that freedom for me, the way I see it, definitely is ridding ourselves as, as people of African descent of these westernized and Europeanized shackles mentally. Um and emotionally, and then from there we can start to operate more in, a, in a, a free manner. Now, if we stay on this American continent, this North American, you know, continent, um, there's no doubt we're going to deal with capitalism. We're going to deal with Eurocentricity. We're going to deal with, um, you know, chauvinism and, and paternalism, those types of things, right? So if we can um, keep our minds strong enough, and keep our minds to an effect free enough, I think that that's the first step in knowing freedom for me personally. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, Dante, Dante said it so eloquently, um, mm-hmm. and that's why he that's why he's as powerful as he is, you know, critical thinker um, and, and a, a critical artist, you know, in terms of uh, mm-hmm. just, his, just his concept development. And, uh, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, I was wondering, um, Dante, are you the poet laureate for Richmond, California, or were you the poet laureate? Oh, uh, back in I believe it was 2014. Um, they uh-huh. had granted me one of the poet lawyers. It was three of us. Um, oh, okay. So they, I guess, the the council couldn't decide on which one. So it was three mm-hmm. of us. Uh, my uh, young, my little sister who was in the program with me, uh, Brenda. She was one of yeah. the laureates, and Lincoln Berman, he was also one of the laureates. So I am not right now a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Another one of my little sisters who I worked with, Sierra uh, Gervais, uh, she is one of the laureates, and I think it's also three of them. But I look at mm-hmm. it like this. Whether they gave me that title for the city or not, I was moving in a way like I don't know nobody that came from my neighborhood that wrote poetry as they way out. Everybody else, had they got it how they lived from the streets. So the fact that mm-hmm. I was able to articulate 
not only from the books, but also from the street corners and put it in a way that the people in the streets can relate and the people in the classrooms mm-hmm. can relate and people who in the rich communities, no matter where you're from, can relate to what I'm talking about. I always looked at myself as a poet, a poet for the people. So as long as I'm doing that, I don't really, I'm not really tripping about a term on a city or somebody else give me, although I appreciate that, that I was acknowledged to even be considered like a representative but I still look at myself as a poet laureate. Mhm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So we have about five or so minutes, and I was just wondering um, if, um, besides you know asking for another poem, I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about um, sort of if we're if we're talking about freedom. Uh, and, and black people can never talk enough about freedom. <laughs> we sing about freedom. We talk about freedom because, wow, we live in a, in a society that, you know, like it's just one step from being captured all the time unless you, you know, have, you know, have a plan and a strategy to stay free because people, exactly. ask, people give away their freedom all the time because a lot of times people don't think they have choices. And I was wondering if you both could talk a little bit about, you know, growing up, you know, I think you both grew up in the Bay Area, um, you know, black boys, now black men, and 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 just sort of being able to navigate the, ter- the terrain in a way that you weren't captured. So I was wondering if you could maybe, mm. like, drop or, you know, give us some clues, you know, some, some parents that might be listening that need some, some, some ways to, like, ensure that their black boys and their black girls stay free. Mm. Okay. Um, I, I think as the, as the elder statesman between myself and Dante, right? Um, mm-hmm. I think that the the need for um, particularly with boys, positive mentoring, positive role models, and imagery. You know, positive imagery I think has helped keep me, you know, free, uh, physically free out of the system. I think that that was big for me. And in turn, that's the types of things that I try to do with some of the young people that I work with is just show them that, look, you know, um, I was the person that, you know, I didn't, I didn't necessarily come from the streets. I don't have that, that background. But at the same time, um, you know, I am a black man, and it's, it is America. So there's other routes that you can take beyond the streets or outside of the streets. There's a way that you can use your intellect. There's a way that you can use your um, mind. There's a way that you can use your emotions in ways that, um, can help you remain free, but also can help you, you know, have some type of tangible skills and life skills. And, um, you know, at the same time, um, I had uh, other men that, that really invested those types of thoughts and feelings and, and actions and behaviors in front of me or in, into me. And so um, with that, you know, they kind of showed me that it, it wasn't just one type of lifestyle. You know, it wasn't just either sports or entertainment or the streets. There were some other people that did some other things, whether it was small business owners, whether it was people who had a nine-to-five, whether it was people who um, had two jobs, you know what I mean? Those types of individuals kind of, you know, also molded me. So I think that in turn I try to represent that that, that voice of black America, of black men to young people that I work with. Yeah, Dante, you told you told me uh, some stories about your dad and your mom, and um, mm-hmm. I was thinking, you know, maybe you might want to want to tell us a little bit about about your people, so to speak. And you have siblings Ma'am, too. Uh, 
Oh yeah, I got a lot of siblings. Um, I, I, I take my hat off to my to my moms and my pops. Um, my moms, she did the best that she could to raise us in an environment where my pops sometimes was absent, whether he was uh, caught up in the streets trying to provide for us or he was incarcerated. Uh, so my mom did the best that she could. And one thing that she taught me was, Carol, what you want to be? Be the best at it. As long as it makes you happy, be the best at it, and I support mm-hmm. you. And so just with that little bit of encouragement of me feeling like, dang, if I don't go to school, if I don't want to get a job in corporate America, what can I do? Because all I have is the streets. Her just giving me that encouragement. I'm not going to be mad at you if you don't go to college, but you better have a plan. And whatever that plan is, execute it. And so me just looking at that like, with it, whatever it is that I want to do, I can't do it as long as I have a plan. And then my pops always taught me, uh, I don't care how old you is. You know what I mean? You could be 15 or you could be 105 years old. You got there one day at a time, and you only get 24 hours, eight hours to sleep, eight hours to do your business, and eight hours to stay out of somebody else's business, and you'll be all right. And then he'll start cracking up laughing. <laughs> and so just that, just just that, those simple jewels of, mm-hmm. like, man, just one day at a time, make a plan, and execute it in 24 hours, mm-hmm. eight hours of sleep, eight hours of doing your work. And in eight hours of minding your own business and staying out of somebody else's, and you'll be all right. And, and I just I just <laughs> apply that, and I feel like that'll be uh, that can be applied in a lot of ways of knowing freedom. It's like, what do you want? Mm-hmm. Identify mm-hmm. it, what you want, and make a plan and do it every day, one day at a time. And eventually, it's gonna come. It may it may seem like it may take two years, but if you work at it twenty four hours a day. Like, give it your all. 24 hours, you can get a lot done in 24 hours when you, with, with concentration of minding your business mm-hmm. and getting some rest. You can get it done. And so that's those are the two things that I got from my parents, and I apply that today. Mm-hmm. Wow, nice, nice. Well, our audience know we're speaking to Dante Clark uh, and uh, Dr. Khalil, Khalid um, Akil White about Dante's newest book, the first off the press to look for others, no freedom. And there's going to be a really wonderful gala at Richmond Post uh, in the Bridge Art Space at 23 Main Avenue, Richmond, California, this Sunday from 3 to 6. So you're going to take it, take it out with a poem, another poem, Dante, from your collection? Oh, man. Uh, I'm going to do, um, <laughs> do a couple of short pieces okay. just to give – folks something to think about this piece is called uh heal and it goes my mind is trying to forget what my heart has forgiven let that sink in Mm. life sings Mm -hmm. me sweet songs i would love to dance but i'm afraid of my feet let that sink in Mm -hmm. how i feel from beginning of scarred mind drooped in a sunken place is hate for thyself out from midnight waters, us ruggedy brown sliced fruit have to grind to no freedom. Outside of the ninth ward, OG bourbon cry Hasilu, Hasilu to escape poverty of spirits fairy tale and breeze by as a memory of lemonade. If you try to understand me, this is strictly for the leaders who misunderstood Tupac Shakur's black fist. Now drips of a city in blood on our hands. Cause somewhere in America, sliced fruit bleeds concrete. A people damned in search for honeycomb to be around. Seeking funnies on road trips to read you and have an eye for it takes digging. Want to become the fabric of me. 
one day wrapped in K's harmony to escape dreaming for the present, to fall, knowing love let her be touched and healed from afraid. Be footprints for forgiveness sake. Now that I pass the age 26, please remember me smiling. <laughs> thank you. Ah, wonderful. Well, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much. Wow, yeah. Um, so my next guest is in the studio and um really looking forward to the gala party celebration of your work um, on Sunday. Uh, Dante, congratulations on this wonderful work. And congratulations to you, Brother White. You know, like you have some, you have some input in this young man that we're talking to this, this morning. So, you know, congratulations to you, too. You know, you, you have some input, a whole lot of input. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I don't know if you're going to share some of that forward that you wrote in the book um, or introduce him um, on Sunday, but I know you're probably going to definitely be there. So look forward to seeing you as well. <laughs> Definitely, right. and I look forward to seeing you too. Thank you for the opportunity, one. Oh, you're quite. Right. You all have a good rest of the day. You too. All right. All right. Peace and blessings. You. You're welcome. Good morning, Martin Luther McCoy. Thanks for calling back in. How are you? Oh, I'm doing all right. How about yourself? Oh, I'm fine. You are just like all over the place. I saw you in picture this debut. Uh, Hunter's Point, that was so awesome, that song that you composed as a part of the Zocco um, Dance Theater Company's um, wonderful work, Joanna Haygood and Company. I mean, oh, ah, it was so awesome. Yeah. We had, a, and we had then, an amazing time. You all were really great. It was just so beautiful to tell that story. And who would have known, you know, that, that, you know, like you got your people are there. Like, wow. Yes. My father started a business in the Bayview, and when my parents first moved to San Francisco, uh, they were up in the projects on Kiska Road for a long time before moving over to Ingleside, but maintained mm-hmm. a healthy relationship with the church, Bell Chapel, as well as yeah. opened up a business on 3rd Street that employed a large number of African-American uh, members of this community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, uh, Susan, um, Laurie Parks, you know, father comes home. You're in there too. Like what? <laughs> Father comes home from the wars. That was yeah, that was exactly. an amazing experience. We got a chance mm-hmm. to go off to uh, do some training on uh, Yale's campus. At uh, oh. we worked directly with Yale School of Drama directors, mm-hmm. administrators, teachers, and students, as well as we had some hands-on insight from Susan Lori Parks herself. It was directed mm-hmm. by uh, Liz Diamond, who has worked with Susan Lori Parks largely for the last 30 years. They're very, very well connected. And that was right. an amazing experience. Got a chance to cut my mm-hmm. teeth on some major stages in a, in a major mm-hmm. theatrical event. It was amazing. Right. Yeah, yeah. And now we have you on to talk about um, Oakland Symphony Swing and Soul, Let Us Break Bread Together, honoring Nina Simone, which is going to be happening on Sunday, December 16th at 4 p.m. at the Paramount Theater in Oakland. So what are you going to be doing? Because there's like so many Hello, Paramount so many Theater. Superstars. It's been too long. Yeah. It's been too long. Oh, seriously? You know. oh, okay. Yeah. And we get a chance to rock with the symphony as well. And uh, yeah. quite interestingly yeah. enough, I believe Kev Choice just had a successful run at the Paramount with the Oakland Symphony, which was amazing. And I was mm-hmm. jealous I didn't get a chance to perform in that. I think I was doing the play at the time. But 
You know, when God has his hands on you, opportunities Mm -hmm. will unfold. You just got to stay in the paint. Yeah, yeah. So um, you all are going to be sort of looking to Nina Simone and the Boogie Woogie of Fast Domino. um, Come on. uh, Yeah, and so um, what do you think about? Yeah, Jazz Mafia is uh, performing um, Oakland Symphony Chorus uh, with Lynn Morrow as the director and uh, mm-hmm. opening the Faith Gospel Choir, you know, Terrence Kelly. So, the uh, and also the Mount, yeah, yeah, and the Mount Eden High School Concert Choir. So, are you preparing like a, a set? Uh, and and sort of what what are you going to be speaking to musically around the theme of Negro spirituals and and the incomparable Nina Simone and Fast Domino in the same sentence. <laughs> Indeed. I mean, I'm going to give you a full-fledged Martin Luther McCoy uh, performance, and I'm going to give you the best workshopping and, uh, what would you call it, interpretive performance of some of Fast Domino's legendary work. They're bringing mm-hmm. me in specifically to deal with that section of the music. And Adam Thies has put some incredible arrangements together for the symphony and for the choirs. And uh, I can't tell you everything because you have to come see it and listen and enjoy it for yourself. But it definitely <laughs> uh, a joyous occasion. We're going to have a good time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about, about your your artistic career because you're also an activist, and you know, and you're carrying that name, Martin Luther. The name? Like, wow. That's a tough yeah. name to carry. I mean, it I was know. never like, um, <laughs> it was never a cross that I'm, Intended on or wanted to bear, it was a name that I I, sh- I shied away from as a youth. I, no one really knew my name was Martin Luther. People called me Marty Marty McCoy, and that was fine. Mm. But Martin Luther had so much weight to it. And then I ended up going to uh, Morehouse College, mm-hmm. where um, you know Dr. King also he's an alumnus. So there was even more interest in that because while in Atlanta, most people that knew me through my collegiate days, they called me Cisco, being that I was from San Francisco, and also mm-hmm. didn't know that my name was Martin Luther McCoy. And when I uh, decided that I had to pursue the arts and under my own name, that's when it became very clear to a lot of people, like, oh, okay, some some folks and friends of mine actually thought that I was taking on the name Martin Luther and the spirit and the legacy of the struggle and the civil rights movement as um, as an act, as a part of a motif or something of that nature. But it's actually my birth name. And mm-hmm. it's been, you know, it's challenging when you deal with, let's just say, search engine optimization, where I might sing R&B and soul music and punk rock soul and rebel soul is the, is the brand of American genre art form that I've created in my mind, although there were also plenty of rebel soul-styled artists before me, like Funkadelic, like Black Murder, like a band called Death. There's uh, there's a lot of uh, black artists who have picked up the guitar, turned on the distortion, turned it way up, and uh, had something to say that might have either been challenging, quote, or trying to impart new thoughts and new ideas in the urban community. But I have um, welcomed that challenge as well in today's modern music landscape because it's what I do. It's not what I am putting on for a moment and trying and then trying something else later. And I happened to link up with the legendary roots crew 
while on my process. I was actually um, attending a funeral for my grandmother down in Houston, Texas, and at the same time, the Roots were passing through with a tour with Erica Badu and Cody Chestnut. And at that time, Cody and I were doing a lot of shows in Los Angeles together. So I decided that I needed to go up to New York and um, perform for some Sony executives. And that turned into the Roots um, having an opportunity for me to join their band for a couple of years. So I did that for about three years. And then came back to the West Coast to release more music, Rebel Soul Music, Love is the Hero, Extraterrestrial Brother. And now I'm working on the next project. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. So are you going to be on stage uh, doing any more uh, theater? I will be. You will? Oh, super. What? I I definitely Well, I'm working on a one-man play right now. And it will be launching here in the Bay Area. When Mm -hmm. we have the uh, location and the dates, you will definitely be one of the first to know. Oh, awesome. Awesome. Oh, that's so great. There's also going to be a Rebel Soul Fest here in the Bay Area on January 21st in Oakland, California at the Spirit Mm -hmm. House. You'll also get some information on that. But uh, like I was saying before, um, young black men, aggressive music, guitars, spirit-filled music with purpose and intention is going to be delivered that night. It's going to be... um, it's going to be um, Mystic Ministry is a is a good a good handle for it. Well, yeah, we haven't had a Rebel Soul Fest in the Bay Area in quite some time, so it's time for another one, and it's going to feature uh, myself and Stone Mecca and Pine of Blood Technique. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, how how does um how do you um how do you stay conscious? And, and and also, you know, able to, uh, I guess, to turn um, sort of the you know things that are going on in the world. How do you how do you how do you stay positive when it seems as if the bad guys are winning? Uh, yeah, and um, because your message is is really one of love, and, and I mean, you sing about love a lot. And um I do. It appears to me mm-hmm. that love always wins in the end. It appears to me that love is the hero that is undefeated. So either I'm going to give in to whatever the current season is or I'm going to choose to stay focused on what I believe uh will reward you with an eternal and everlasting victory. And that's not the easiest thing to do sometimes because you might see a lot of people or a lot of things happening that are getting over or it feels like evil is actually gaining a lot more ground, well, then that means I got to dig my heels in a whole lot deeper. I can't be counting on anybody else and their process to dictate or to govern or to determine for my spirit and for my life and for my agenda and for my path. So I see what they got going on. I smell it. I hear it. You know, people are getting way emboldened with number 45 at the helm, but that just means that I got to double, you know, double down with my uh, ideas and with action plans and with collaborations. I'll be doing some work with the Hyro crew in Oakland real soon. Shout out to DJ Ture. Uh Shout out DJ Sharp. 
and Ankh marketing. You have to figure out who is on the same path that you're on. Link mm-hmm. up and activate. If you sit around just waiting for things to turn around and get better, you might be waiting a long time. So I intend on making things better for myself and for my family and for my allies with everything that I'm doing. Yeah, yeah. So having a father, you know, um, businessman, and I don't know if your mother's a businesswoman as well, and, and I know you she have siblings. She is, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, is that how you've been able to, like, your art is your business? Um, a lot of times people have a another job to support their art, but for you, you've been able to make a career from your work, from your artistic work. And I was just wondering, is that because of how you were raised and because of the examples in your life? It's a it's a combination because it doesn't mean that everything has been all good financially and I'm just having a good time jumping around doing what I want to do in the world. I still have to deal with some brass tacks and do other things to earn income just like everybody else as an artist you got to be about your hustle. As a creative, you got to be about your hustle. But if you just want to live in the Bay Area, you're going to have to be about your hustle. And that's, what, you know, across the board. I do other things, property management. I've learned how to get into lightweight, into construction, lightweight, mm-hmm. into uh, administrative and um, foundation information and nonprofit organizations and joining other ensembles to where I can perform and let my talents be seen and heard. I'm uh, the lead singer for a performing arts organization entitled Moon Medicine um, and led by uh, interdisciplinary artist and uh, visual artist Sanford Biggers, who also happens to be one of my Morehouse brothers. Uh, But Mm -hmm. it's not like uh, I've been able to do what I want and I'm just having a good time. There's a lot of struggle involved, but you have to be built for that or have some plans or a way to survive during the lean months, during the lean years, and then also prepare and put away when there is, uh, you know, times of plenty. We we have to be responsible for what we want to do in the arts, and it also means how to govern your finances in a way that will allow you to continue to work, to not just be going broke, because there was a time when every dollar that I made, I put it right back into building the brand Rebel Soul. And, I mean, that's honorable and noble and whatnot, but it might not have been the smartest thing to do with money every time. Um, my mother would always advise me to put a, t- you know, put a percentage away and let it sit there. Don't touch it because emergencies will come up. And if you're completely invested in what your dreams are all the time, then you might not be in the best position to deal with those emergencies. And that's very sound advice. I didn't always follow it. I still have a hard time following it now because I'm very passionate about my dreams. However, you know, we have to be um, playing the game as smart as possible, and I'm doing mm-hmm. the best I can with it. Mm-hmm. Wow, yeah. Well, we're really looking forward to uh, to seeing you um, in performance with the Oakland Symphony um, and the other wonderful folks that are part of this lineup. I just love... Um, let us break bread together, you know, the Oakland Symphony mm-hmm. tradition that Michael Morgan, the maestro, brought with him when he, you know, came to town. Like, how many years ago mm-hmm. was that? <laughs> Hello? Yeah, yeah. Because I, I remember. It's been a blessing for this area. Oh, totally, yeah. Because you remember um, um, Calvin Simmons, right? I mean, he I was do. just such a beautiful person. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I remember going I to do. symphonies, and then when he and when he drowned, like, oh my gosh, it's like such a tragic uh, end to such a wonderful career. And then Michael comes, you know, and it's like, ah, he's just so lovely. And I know, it's like, how do you fill a void like that? And then all of a sudden, right. someone comes yeah. with a whole new energy. Yeah. Mhm. Yeah, yeah. So it's going to be magic as usual. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I, I have um, I have a couple of pieces that um. You sent me, and I just love uh, Rise, your acapella piece. That piece that is so beautiful. Thank it's, you. It's the words Rise are so is the like... same song that I was actually singing in the uh, Zuko dance presentation. Oh, Zuko. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. I was wondering. It's a dedication what, to I, the I, resurrection of a young black mind who happened to be, in particular, my nephew mm-hmm. and all of his friends that I used to, I, mean, I wouldn't say I mentored, but I would holler at them because as um, I find that young black men need older black men to stay in tune with. Mm. We have to stay in tune with them. They have to stay in tune with us. And when we get disconnected, sometimes that could lead to, you know, very, very dark events and occurrences that often lead to prison time or that often lead to um, having rights taken away um, that often leads to a feeling of disenfranchisement of uh, you start to feel like no one really cares, there's no opportunity for you, and you're going to do whatever you're going to do in order to get by and survive. And when you get on that page, it's hard to get off of that page until something happens like someone takes your rights away, and now you have to breathe recycled air or be restricted on how much time you can go out and see the sun every day until someone allows you to. So my intention is to prevent is to prevent that from happening. And I do use my music as the medicine because I can, and that's where my heart is. So Rise mm-hmm. is that song that speaks to that, that particular issue. I mean, it means something different to everyone who hears it, but that's what it was written for, and it's been an amazing journey with that song because the fans often request it, and uh, I'm thankful for that. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's really, really beautiful, and yeah, thank you. Thank you for the, um, you know, telling telling us sort of, you know, um, how it came to be. And, uh, yeah, really, really wonderful, um, wonderful piece. And so um, so I was thinking, you know, we could close our conversation with this particular work. Um, do you want to share anything else about, about Sunday except, you know, you're not giving it all up? you got to come and see, the, you know, come yeah, and be I mean, in. Sunday and is about to be a <laughs> rocking good time. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. not going to be dragging about. You know, me, me and Simone, I had the opportunity to perform with Kev oh, Choice, really? interestingly enough, um, mm-hmm. a tribute to Nina Simone, and we yeah. played Mississippi Goddamn. And I tell mm-hmm. you, that song is amazing. It's amazingly unique to express what she was expressing, as well as the uh, music and the arrangement. And it just lets you know what kind of brilliant level of talent you're dealing with. Within this moment, you just won't hear anything like her music unless she mm-hmm. creates and records it. Now that's one thing. Right. Fat Domino was rocking. Fat mm-hmm. Domino was ready to turn up, you know, uh, a la his era. But we're going to reinterpret that music and you know bring it to the people of Oakland with the Oakland Symphony on Sunday. We want to see you right. out there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All righty, we're cool. Well, thank you again so much for this great conversation. Look forward to seeing you and, um, yeah, hearing more about these other, um, you know, the um, 
the Rebel Soul um, uh, concert at Spirit House mm-hmm. on the 21st. That's going to be awesome. And mm-hmm. more of your mythic ministry, um, you know, sort of other things that are be happening. Because, you know, 2019 is a big year for black folks in, in America, looking at the impact of our ancestors on this nation, um, you know, looking at, um, you know, the move from indentured servitude to enslavement. Um, you know, by way of those ancestors that came into Virginia, um, mm. uh, the Jamestown, Virginia, uh, in right. 1619. Yeah, yeah. So it's all about, you know, our making sure that our presence is acknowledged and our and our gifts to this nation nation are acknowledged, and that we acknowledge our our own gifts because a lot of times we you do. know we, we don't realize our, our values. That's yeah, right. Yeah. And we and we have to uh, not only just seek recognition for our contributions, but we also mm-hmm. have to put forth our agendas, hold people yeah. accountable to meet benchmarks, mm-hmm. continue to aim higher. As my wife always tells me, continue to aim higher. You will also hear and see me performing with the San Francisco, or should I say the SF Jazz Collective, in 2019 oh. and 2020, and that's a little really? uh, yeah. yeah, that's a little tidbit of early news, but it's going to happen hopefully towards the fourth quarter of 2019 going mm-hmm. forward. But things are mm-hmm. in motion. I've been uh, performing at the SF Jazz Center in various capacities over the few last few years, mm-hmm. and I'm definitely looking forward to collaborating with the SFJC. Cool, cool. That's great. So more new work, right? That's right. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're just busy. That's great. <laughs> A rolling yeah. stone gathers no moss. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, as long as we're moving, we're alive, right? Indeed. But we have mm-hmm. to stay in motion because motion begets motion. If you stop, things can break down, mm-hmm. things can settle, things can, you know, you reach a plateau. The body needs to stay in motion. The right. mind needs to stay yeah. engaged, and there's plenty mm-hmm. of work to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So at the end of the show, um, after I have my, my next guest, because um, I'm going to play Rise, you know, now, um, I was going to play Sarah Smiles, and, and that's the um, the Sarah Smiles, the standard, right? I mean, it's pretty standard. It's just uh, my interpretation. <laughs> Not the way you do it, though. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. I was listening to I'm like, I think this is the other one, but it's, it's so different the way you do it. <laughs> right. Why do it yeah. the same, you know? Oh, Hall of Notes, they, they made it, uh, an incredible song. They made history with the song and the story. Mm-hmm. And we just decided to put a little twist to it, put that beat on it, you know, get that head knocking mm-hmm. the right way. And then uh, <laughs> I go ahead and sing it. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> okay. Cool. Well, you thank thank you again so much, and I'm gonna go ahead and I'll play Rise. You have a good rest. All right. Of the day. Thank you very you much for having me. Have a beautiful rest sure. of the day. Sure. See you next Sunday. Peace and blessings. Get up. Get up. Get up. Get up. Get up. Rise. 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 It's time. It's time. It's time. It's time. To rise. 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 Ah, oh, 
What's happening, little brother? Are you still getting by? On the corner every day, you like to pay. Are you still, Are you still getting high? Now I'm only your reflection Deeply bothered, chocolate soul complexion Believe we're gonna rise again Would you please tell a friend To come on in Take your time and make sure that you do it Right. Why the Cadillac lean from side to side when I'm hanging with my friends? Just to be alive is a reason to ride, especially with my kids. Hit a little something and I'm feeling right, just might hit it again. Open your eyes, don't you be surprised when we start to win. Oh, when we start to win, when we start to win, oh, sometimes. I want to feel like I'm the one in control Another illusion Take back every element of me that they stole So hard I'll be fine when I heal my mind, body, and soul Till then, take your time and make sure that you do it right. We'll be making moves, making moves while knowing God is on our side. Why the Cadillac lean from side to side when I'm Just to be alive is a reason to ride, especially with my kids. Hit a little something and I'm feeling right, just might hit it again. Open your eyes, don't you be surprised when we start to win. In case you didn't know. Believe it. 
Martin Luther and Rise, and again, he's a part of the wonderful ensemble of stars that are going to be um, performing at the Oakland Symphony's annual tribute to the Negro Spirituals, Let Us Break Bread, looking at soul and spirit on Sunday, December 16, 4 p.m. at Paramount Theater in Oakland, so you don't want to miss that. And we are so excited to have uh, Mr. Nathan Richardson in the studio. He is, if you want to know what Frederick Douglass looks like and sounds like, this is the man. And hopefully you were able to catch him when he was in the Bay Area earlier um, this year. Uh, He was in Oakland um, at the, um, what's the name of the bookstore you were at in Oakland? Um, Mr. Richardson? Uh, The Pro Arts uh, Theater. The Pro Arts Right, yeah, yeah. And then you were also here. You were um, sort of a part of the um, Irish-American uh, Crossroads. Uh, what is it? Uh, the Irish-American, is it Crossroads Festival? Art, um, Arts and Writers Festival out in right, Los Angeles. Right. Yeah. yeah, that's an yeah. annual event. Uh, in this, that's an annual event in its fourth year. Uh, mm-hmm. And, of course, the association there is that Douglas – I spent uh, 21 months in England and Ireland, uh, four months particularly when he first uh, left the United States. Uh, He spent in England and Ireland. He he, uh, spoke widely throughout the country uh, and everywhere from Limerick to uh, Belfast, uh, all all the cities of Ireland. He, He gave speeches in Ireland. Right. Yeah, yeah. And Maybe you could tell us how this is uh, Frederick Douglass's um, bicentennial year. He would he would have been uh, two hundred this year, um, and uh, I think you you write that he was born um, in the second uh, like slavery had been going on for a hundred years when he was born, and uh, in eighteen eighteen and. Um, Wow, there's a new book out about him. But I was wondering sort of what, what brings you to, you know, the scholarship and embodiment of, of his life because you really look like him <laughs> a whole lot. Yeah, well, I tell you what, uh, 
it, it's uh, one of those things where I've always wanted to be uh, be a football player or a basketball player, particularly black basketball. But if you're not born with those particular endowments of, uh, say, six foot five <laughs> to seven foot, uh, then you're not likely to be, you know, your chances of being a basketball player are slim. Well, uh, in my in, in my gift uh, is, you know, my appearance uh, as well as my voice, uh, you know, has, has made me uh, a, a pretty convincing Frederick Douglass. Uh, I got into uh, this uh, by way of poetry and spoken word. I, I was definitely enjoying uh, the song that preceded uh, this segment because it's, uh, you know, reminds me of the last poets and, and uh, all the uh, the great uh, poetry, jazz, uh, nouveau music uh, that I uh, enjoyed as a teenager. Uh, but I, I, I'm a poet uh, by birth, so to speak, uh, and a storyteller. And I uh, started uh, doing Frederick Douglass uh, as uh, really I was challenged by a fellow storyteller uh, to do a historical character. Uh, and I was somewhat reluctant, uh, but uh, she kept prodding me to do it. She said it was not a lot of male, uh, black males doing uh, living history. And mm-hmm. so uh, I started looking at various characters, Du Bois, uh, Booker T. Washington. When I looked at Frederick Douglass, I, I was looking somewhat at myself. Uh, and so I said, well, let me, let me uh, see what he's got to say. Uh, and, of course, I knew about Frederick Douglass, but I had never really – sat down and read his words. And uh, once I did, I, found, I realized that uh, he was a, a very poetic and uh, pathetic uh, speaker, writer, orator. And so uh, that, that's what led me to uh, becoming Douglas. <laughs> and you really, really do him justice. And um, I was looking at your website, um, SC Publishing, and uh, you've got some books. Uh, that you've written, and um, as well as um, you got a calendar of, of events coming up, uh, which and you know it's really uh, and also next year is up as well. Are you coming back uh, to California um, next year? Well, it's certainly a possibility. Uh, I, I come out to the Bay Area uh, maybe once every other year or every every uh, couple of years. Uh, Mm-hmm. Normally based on poetry because I'm a, you know, I I teach poetry. I coach a youth poetry team called the Hampton Rose Youth Poets, and mm-hmm. we t- participate in the Youth Speaks Brave New Voices International Poetry Slam. So I normally come out that to the Bay Area about every two or three years uh, to bring my team out for that. Uh, this year was the first year that I came out as Douglas. Uh, mm-hmm. Next year, uh, I'll probably be out there either as a poet or as Douglas. Uh, the the uh, Irish uh, Writers and Arts Festival, uh, they're going to be doing their thing again in, in the uh, fall of next year. Uh, but I'm actually hoping that they'll invite me to, on their journey to uh, back to Ireland. So uh, if they if they say, let's go to oh, Ireland. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm on the plane. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Right, right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so, we, so um, next year is, uh-huh. go ahead. No, no, go ahead, next year, go ahead. No, I was going to say that next year, um, of course, this this year we were, was a, was a absolutely tremendous year. 
uh, in the four years that I have been doing Frederick Douglass, uh, this is the most active. And because, like you said in the, in the start of the show, uh, it's uh, the, the bicentennial. Frederick Douglass was born in, in around February 1818. Uh, and so 2018 was the bicentennial. And all across the country, there were initiatives celebrating, commemorating his life. And so uh, I actually did uh, uh, 67 performances of Douglas uh, this year all across the country. So uh, next year, uh, we'll be uh, be commemorating, the nation will be commemorating uh, 1619. Uh, which is uh, commemorates 400 years uh, since the first Africans were brought to North America, uh, which they landed in, in Port Comfort in Hampton, Virginia. Port Comfort um, was right on the mouth of the Chesapeake Bay in Virginia and is now known as Fort Monroe, which is a very historic uh, Civil War fort uh, that uh, became uh, eventually became uh, uh, TRADOC, which is, was a joint uh, branches training doctrine and command center for the entire military, uh, used to be stationed at Fort Monroe. Uh, so uh, now that uh, fort has been um, has been dismantled, so to speak, or decommissioned. And now Fort Monroe is basically a museum. And uh, it is fitting that uh, a lot of black history, a tremendous amount of black history started, especially slavery, started and ended uh, basically at Fort Monroe, at Port Comfort. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So are you, um, as Douglas, uh, participating in um, any of the um – uh, events that are um, that are happening to commemorate this yes, moment, and, and I was just wondering. Oh, super! And then also, I wanted you to talk about sort of what this means. Like, what does it mean to you, um, you know, uh, Nathan Richardson? Right. And then, what does it mean right. to Douglas and and Harry yeah. Tubman and our ancestors? Right. Well, what it what it means for me uh, is that. Um, uh, the area where I where I was born, I was born in the Hampton Roads, Virginia area. Uh, to now realize that this, uh, and I always always knew uh, that Virginia uh, was basically the birth of the nation, uh, the birth of slavery, one of the last states to resist um, Brown versus the Board of Education, all these things, if you're from Virginia, you you have to know these things. And if you didn't learn them in school, you have to dig (laughs) and find out what it's all about. So uh, what it means uh, for this to be the 400th year commemorating the first African landing is that, uh, um, that I can be a part of it. I can be a part of it by sharing uh, with other people around around the country, uh, when you're talking about uh, you know tourists, where you're going to go to visit, uh, you know our history. Uh, you can go to uh, to uh, Washington D.C. to the National uh, African American Museum, which is newly constructed. 
You can go down south uh, to the new museum that uh, commemorates the lynchings of the south and Fort Monroe, uh, which, like we said, uh, slavery actually started there. The first 20 slaves brought to North America landed at Port Comfort in 1619. And then... uh, from that, the evolution was that uh, in the Civil War, Fort Monroe was the place where many slaves found refuge uh, as part of the contraband clause. Uh, Lincoln, before he uh, established the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, had a contraband clause where uh, runaway slaves could claim uh, protection under the contraband clause, and many of them came, thousands came to Fort Monroe. And so all of this is, you know, means a lot to me as a person. Uh, now, as, as Frederick Douglass, uh, what it means is that everything he was fighting for in the abolition of slavery uh, came to a climax, so to speak, uh, with Abraham Lincoln, the Civil War, Fort Monroe, uh, and, 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 and so it's 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 uh, it's very important to him as well. So this year, uh, the National Park Service, which now owns part or, or runs or manages Fort Monroe, has mm-hmm. a, a, an entire schedule throughout the year of of events that tell uh, our story, the African diaspora. Uh, from 1619 all the way to 2020, uh, 2019. Uh, and so I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna be a part of that. I'm gonna be a part of, Frederick Douglass will be a part of uh, several programs. Uh, one uh, program that's being put on by the Contraband Society. There's actually a society of people who, you know, preserve their history. I'll be a part of that. I'll be a part of a celebration uh, on June 14th uh, celebrating Juneteenth. Uh, Frederick Douglass will be a part of that as well, along with Harriet Tubman and some of the other characters. So uh, what we are trying to do in Virginia uh, is to kind of turn the table um, to make uh, the entire nation aware that, you know, what we can do is tell our entire history that we, that that the African diaspora did not start with slavery, actually started with kings and queens in Africa. We were Mm -hmm. brought here uh, as slaves, and then we we found our emancipation, and now we're in 2019, and we need to be, we need to tell that whole story, and we need to be the ones telling the story. Mm, Right, right. Yeah, yeah. So the idea of, of, Contraband. I thought, and I'm not an expert. I thought that um, the Jamestown, um, uh, Virginia arrival. I thought the Africans aboard were indentured servants, which meant that they would be free, you know, after they, you know, worked, you know, whatever that agreement was. And um, from what you just said, the, they were enslaved when they got on the boat. So where does the idea of indentured servitude come from around that story? Well, uh, for, for number one, uh, that mm-hmm. uh, when Jamestown was settled in around 1607, uh, mm-hmm. there were uh, Africans, there were people of all races. Uh, slavery had not become an institution 
Right. And so there were people of all types who were free. There were black men who were free. There were black and white people who were indentured servants. Uh, these 20 uh, Africans were slaves, were, were captured as slaves from the beginning. Uh, mm. The Americans actually um, hijacked or pirated a Spanish ship and took the cargo, including the chattel property of slaves, those 20 people, and brought them to Port Comfort. Now, the reason Port Comfort is significant is because Port Comfort is at the mouth of the bay, and you cannot get to to Jamestown without coming past Port Comfort. It would have been the normal stop for any ship entering into the tributaries of Virginia. Mm -hmm. So uh, the, the, the history that has been told thus far uh, leaves out some important facts. Number one, that those 20 uh, P- Africans were already captured to be slaves as uh, by, the, by the Spanish. They were hijacked by the colonies. Uh, and when they were brought here, uh, yeah, they, slavery was not an institution, uh, but if you look at the records, most of the uh, people, uh, the Anglo-Saxons, who were, who were also brought alongside them, they were actually in their records when they brought them into Jamestown and they, you know, wrote up their papers, those whites, those Anglo-Saxons had a date in which they would be free when their, when their servitude, when, their, uh, when, that, when they would be free. The blacks mm-hmm. had no such date. And that is because this was the ramping up the colonists were realizing that there was a lot of work to be done, a lot of labor, a lot of planting, a lot of building, uh, mm-hmm. and they didn't want to do all that work. And so this was the beginnings of slavery and all the laws that were built up around the Constitution to make it seem as though the Constitution uh, was written uh, in approving slavery when it was, in fact, not. Mm-hmm. Right. Wow. So this is what you know. For most, so many of us have been taught in our school systems is that first Africans landed in Jamestown, la 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 la, the la la mm-hmm. story. Well, when you start getting into the facts, you look into the records, then you start finding out the real facts and how how this uh, evil institution of slavery actually started in America and where it started. Uh, and mm-hmm. so we just can't white whitewash it. So it's important uh, that we as African Americans, myself, those women who are doing living history and portraying uh, Phyllis Wheatley and Harriet Tubman and Sojourner Truth and so forth and so on, that we tell the story from our perspective. Uh, The African fable says, until the lion learns to read and write, history will always glorify the hunter. So, you know, it's it's wonderful uh, that uh, Mr. Blight, I uh, wrote this national bestseller uh, book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was actually in New York with him just recently, just prior to the book being published. Um, and, and it's great uh, that he has spent you know, his time, uh, his doctorate, um, telling that story, uh, telling the story of Frederick Douglass. Uh, but what you find throughout history is this is a continuation uh, of the story of, of black people in the hands of, of other people. 
Uh, and so we want to at least uh, have this story shared where we are actually telling our own story as well. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. Um, one thing that uh, people don't hear about a lot um, is, um, you know, uh, Frederick Douglass's wife uh, who, um, you know, purchased his freedom. Um, right. And, yeah, yeah, and um, supported him. You know, um, you know, she was a businesswoman. She was a free woman sure. of color, and um, and she, you know, she really stood by him. And uh, and so, yeah. And I, I was really, um, I don't know. I'd like to hear more about her. And so, I was wondering sure. in your in your um, uh, in your stories that you tell as Frederick Douglass, do you ever talk about his wife? Does he talk well, about his uh, wife? I, I certainly do. But in keeping true to the character of Frederick Douglass, um, mm-hmm. he didn't speak about uh, the women um, uh, in his life uh, except in a formal manner. Uh, and mm-hmm. so I, in, in being in the persona of Frederick Douglass, I have to hold true to that. Once mm-hmm. I come out of character, which I'm talking as the understudy now, uh, then mm-hmm. I can, can go into the superconscious of Frederick Douglass and talk mm-hmm. about the things that he knew but did not talk about. So mm. um, there's actually a, a pretty good book out about all the women associated with Frederick Douglass, and not only uh, uh, Anna, Anna Murray, uh, mm-hmm. who, who, who was his first wife. He, mar- he was married to her for 40 years. She sold her bedpost uh, so that he could have a ticket uh, to escape from Baltimore. Uh, so she was responsible for him escaping out of freedom, uh, and then we have all other, uh, a lot of other uh, women, mostly white. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. Julia Griffiths, uh, the Richardsons, all of these were Europeans who actually were the ones who raised the money while he was in Europe and purchased his freedom for $733. They also raised money, $2,500, so that he could start his newspaper. So all along the way, uh, women were involved in supporting Frederick Douglass. Uh, they were enamored by his good looks, uh, by his oratory, by his physical presence. And so they played an important role in his success. Uh, but when you read his narrative, then you're not going to find a lot of that, uh, except in a formal manner, uh, from the perspective that uh, he, uh, he he supported women's suffrage. Uh, from my from my experience, that seems to be the way that Frederick Douglass was paying back all the women who supported him by standing beside them in their stand for suffrage because there was not many men who wanted to stand with the women. Mhm. Yeah. 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 That's a. Um, it's a. Uh, I don't know. Um, I don't. I don't like. Uh, what happened uh, with regards to, I mean, his black wife and then the secretary and then, yeah, that was, yeah. I don't, I well, don't like uh, the way he treated her. <laughs> well, if you yeah. don't like what happened, I, I, and this is what I say to my audiences when, when I'm talking mm-hmm. to them about this, if you don't yeah. like what uh, the, the, the role of the women in Freddie Douglas's life, 
you would not also like the role of any women in any man's life in the in the 19th century. <laughs> I mean, this was the standard of living at that time. And so oh. what we are doing uh, is mm-hmm. putting a 21st century uh, attitude to judge uh, a 19th century mindset. And, and mm. it, 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 I mean, t- time is changing uh, civilization and attitudes and norms all along. Five years ago, uh, mm-hmm. Kevin Hart wouldn't have been rushed out of uh, his role. You know that he, he one minute he was he was going to be the, the guy with the Oscars, and now he's not. And that's because society is changing. Mm-hmm. So when I'm talking to audiences about um, about Frederick Douglass's wife, um, she was serving the role that women served at that time. And it is mm-hmm. absolutely uh, essential that uh, Frederick Douglass would not have been able to accomplish the things that he did if she had not been serving that role. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was much like Coretta Scott King, although um, although uh, Douglass's wife was much muchly illiterate, she was a smart person. You know, just because a person can't read does not mean that they don't have sense. So she had, mm-hmm. had she was a very smart person, but she couldn't read. Now, if you compare her to say uh, Coretta Scott King, Coretta Scott King took the similar role of Frederick Douglass's wife. She uh, basically took all of her talents and all her skills and put them aside for the good, for the common cause of what Martin Luther King was doing. And so how many women would make that kind of sacrifice? So it is a tribute to women uh, that we should not only uh, hold up and lift up uh, Coretta Scott King, but, but Frederick Douglass's wife, and the wives of all the other uh, men who came through that that period of time. Right. Yeah. Mhm. Yeah. Thank you for that that context. Um, yeah. I I, uh, I don't think I've ever ever had that. Um, I've been. I don't think I've ever gotten that response to to the question before. So it helps. Sure. Uh, because I yeah. Because yeah, well, I, I really. I have, I have women coming in, coming at me uh, as Frederick Douglass, and they and they actually get somewhat frustrated uh, because uh, in being the character of Frederick Douglass, uh, mm-hmm. you know, a person has a conscience, a subconscious, and a superconscious, and you're not going to enter the person's superconscious, man or woman, even though they may be aware. Uh, they are not going to uh, let you into their superconscious. And mm-hmm. so as an actor portraying a character, that's what you have to do. You have to protect the character's superconscious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, as, yeah. As, now as, <laughs> as, as the understudies, then I could, we can talk about it freely and we can try yeah. to make sense of what what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um yeah, that's fine. So I was just wondering um, if um, if Frederick Douglass, um, you know, because he does have a a uh, a person who is the understudy that's alive in this 21st century, um, if if he could think about 
sort of the whole the whole the the four hundredth anniversary of the first Africans um you know, to arrive as enslaved persons, you know, to Fort Comfort. Um and, and this whole thing around just sort of looking at the black presence in the United States and in the West and, and how right. how much we change this uh change this this space because we are here. Yet right. how little the space has changed since we've been here. Sure. I'm talking politically, right. I'm talking economically. I was just wondering yeah. does does he ever if he could think about it, you know, and, and let you be his voice, what would he say? Well, uh this is Frederick Douglass speaking through poet Nathan Richardson. Mm-hmm. This is not a Douglas quote, this is a quote and it's actually part him and part me. We have made it from the sweet taste of of freedom in our slavery. We've made it from the sweet taste of freedom in our slavery to the bitter taste of slavery in our freedom. That's where we are today in in, in in 2018. We have the bitter taste of slavery in our freedom. We enjoy many freedoms, but we have allowed of what Douglas called the romantic narrative to continue. The romantic narrative of the South is that the South will rise again, and we have not uh, ended that romantic narrative. It is still alive. Uh, it is it is uh, juxtaposed against uh, against the new slogan of the day, the magma hat, make America great again. It means the same thing. It's synonymous. And so... What we have done, uh, and not just Douglas, but Du Bois and Booker T. Washington, all of them were trying to get us to look at some particular things that would make us more successful in in our in America, and and put down or or put away slavery uh, and prejudice in America forever. Uh, but uh, unfortunately. Uh, over time, we have just become more and more trivialized. We're only looking at the surface. We're only looking at the um, the symptoms of the problem, and we have not made any gains uh, in this in the uh, the source of the problem. And I always mm-hmm. and this is this is really where, where it comes down to where the rubber meets the road because I really meet uh, so many uh, angry. Uh, citizens uh, who say to me, uh, "Why, why do, why, why were you in here? Why don't we go back to Africa?" Well, this is the same question that they had right after the Emancipation Proclamation. We would go back to Africa. Uh, will we go somewhere else? Mm-hmm. And the answer is, we will not go anywhere else. This is our country. We were born here. This is our country, just like it is their country. The problem is, is that we do not value the constitution of this country. We do not consider it, in in many cases, it to be our constitution. And we certainly don't know the constitution well enough to protect ourselves or demand our rights. And and so until we do that, until we not just have a few lawyers, a few judges, Mm-hmm. One or two Supreme Court justices, 
but until we have a have a have a representation in those classes of people, then we cannot uh, we cannot have an end to police brutality uh, because we do not have enough people at the table uh, to make a difference because some of those at the table are are not willing to stand up. They're afraid, even though they're at the table, they don't have the backing to stand to stand up and demand change. And so, um, you know, there are so many writers who have said this. Uh, color is a construct of society. It's a construct, and it does not matter. Uh, uh, one of one of Douglas's quotes is, uh, "It was not. Uh, it was not." Man, it was not God, but man. It was not color, but crime that created slavery. All throughout history, you will find that no matter what color a person is, once they start attaining money, power, and wealth, then they start protecting that money and power and wealth and influence. And so we are part of a society that treasures, money, and power, and influence above all things. So we really have to have people who understand the Constitution, who stand up for the Constitution, uh, and, and, and defend the Constitution that we have the rights that were written in the Constitution. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, yeah, definitely, I mean, definitely. Really, these are the three mm-hmm. things that were denied most African Americans, the right to learn, the right of citizenship, and the right to vote. Also, uh, the, the, the right to understand the Constitution. Those four things were denied us. And so those were the things that fuel uh, Douglas, Booker T. Washington. These, that's why they, they desire to learn, to teach themselves how to read so fiercely is because they were being denied that right. They were... You know, in the 60s, we were being denied the right to vote. And so we had a severe uh, longing to want to vote, to do everything we had to, to vote. Same thing is true with the Constitution. We cannot go year after week, generation after generation, saying that you know the Constitution when you know the Constitution, you don't know what it means. You do not have mm-hmm. a Constitution in your pocket or in your home. You cannot say that the Constitution is not for you when you don't have it to know what it says. That the little bit that they taught you in school is not enough. So what Frederick Douglass said was that there, it is no evidence that the Bible is a bad book because those who profess to believe in the Bible are bad. The slaveholders of the South and many of their wicked allies in the North claim the Bible for slavery. Shall we therefore cast away the Bible as a pro-slavery book? It would be about as reasonable to cast away the Constitution. So he's making a comparison that if you judge the Bible based on what people are doing, you're going to throw the Bible out the window. And the same mm-hmm. thing is true of the Constitution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it takes a lot of um, restraint to not throw these documents out. Um, just because, <laughs> no, I'm serious. Let's like just yeah, you know, sure. let's just get rid of it all. We can we can do better. 
Sure. Yeah. Well, it, it, I, and I say the Bible, you know, people are trying to claim this is a, uh, necessarily a Christian nation, but the First Amendment guarantees freedom of, freedom of uh, religion. Uh, mm-hmm. And the first ten words of the, of the First Amendment are never repeated. When, when someone says, when you ask the average person, what does the First Amendment say? They say, well, it means it's freedom of religion. Well, they do not, they skip over it. Inherently, they skip over the first ten words of the First Amendment, which says the government will not establish a religion in this country. That's definitive. That means that Mm -hmm. the Quran, the Torah, the Bible, all books have the same weight. There are people Mm -hmm. who believe that President Obama had to had to swear on the Bible. He did not. He mm-hmm. could swear. There's a person who actually recently just was elected to a local office, and believe it or not, swore on Malcolm X's biography. Really? Oh, who was that? Absolutely, absolutely. Who was I that? Mean, if you don't know, if you don't know something, then you yeah. are then you believe something that is not true. Yeah, who did that though, and what was the office that the person um, was wearing or into? It was a local, and it was actually a female elected official, uh, uh-huh. and uh, I cannot call the name. I'm just well, going that's from, awesome. from I did when I saw it. I did research <laughs> it back, and and uh, mm-hmm. and uh, and this was actually some, another uh, person who uh, this came up in the 2016 election. Uh, in a local office where uh, this particular running mate was saying that the candidate, because he was Muslim, uh, mm-hmm. could not be sworn in because he would have to be sworn in on the Bible. Mm-hmm. Well, the the reporter who was talking to him knew the Constitution. The mm-hmm. person who was running for office did not. And he corrected him <laughs> on the spot and he said, excuse me, you know, if you're yeah. a Muslim and you win an election, you do not have mm-hmm. to you do not have to swear your oath on the Bible. You can mm-hmm. swear it on the Quran. You can swear it on the Torah. Right. Mhm. Yeah, because I I remember when I remember someone being sworn in on the Torah. Um, yeah. Right. Mhm. That's really awesome. Yeah. But you know that you could choose the document that you want to put your hand on. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. So, uh, you know, until we really have an understanding uh, of our Constitution, it's the same as we claim to have an understanding of our spiritual documents, mm-hmm. uh, we're going to be a long ways off from being able to navigate uh, the land, the territory that we live in. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we decided to go... I mean, many people who say we should go back to Africa, I would say, well, number one, Africa is not a not a country, it's a continent. So what country mm-hmm. would you go to and what constitution right. would you serve under? Mm-hmm. Right. That's yeah. the fundamental question of where mm-hmm. we are. Right. Yeah, yeah. So I was wondering, um, in wrapping up this conversation, if you could tell us a little bit about you know, sort of how you grew up, um, you know, in the South and, like, um, and and your, 
your your interest in history, and I was wondering, did you study it, um, um, you know, um, when you went to college or even before then? Sort of how you became, you know, a, a, a writer, a, um, you know, a teacher, you know, uh, you know, leading these young people, teaching poetry and things like that. How how you ended up, you know, sort well, of being an orator? Well, I, I tell you what, uh, you know, people mm-hmm. always start asking me if, if I chose Douglas, and in the end, it seems like Douglas chose me. He chose me, <laughs> or, or the, or it was divine intervention that selected me because I have so much in common with Douglas. Was a self-made man, mm-hmm. and so am I a self-made man. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I uh, graduated from high school in '78. I went right into the military. I spent 22 years in the military, uh, mm-hmm. and I have not gone to any college. Uh, but, you know, learning is a lifelong process, so I'm a student, uh, and I am a come from a tradition of storytellers. My actual heritage uh, on my paternal side, my, my dad, his people came from North Carolina, um, 60% uh, Irish, uh, 40% Masawasapani Indian, uh, Alawasapani Indian, uh, my, on my maternal side, uh, they were from Southampton County and uh, ex-slaves, sharecroppers, uh, and I grew up in a community of people who were storytellers, and my father is the griot of our family and of our community, and he can walk into a cemetery and, and name the people who are in un, unmarked graves. And so that, wow. that's what I learned from from early in life, mm-hmm. uh, and then this is just manifested um, in me, uh, and uh, and so that's how, that's why I'm here today. So a lot of people come to me and say, "We're, I mean, you you really are one of the best Douglases I've ever seen." Uh, and uh, a lot of times, actors come and say, "Well, where did you study?" <laughs> I was like, <laughs> "Well, you know, I really didn't. I really didn't go to any." Uh, you know, governor's school or, uh, you know, Juilliard or anything like that, you know, uh, it's just uh, it's just what I have uh, sought uh, over my entire life. Uh, and so they mm-hmm. said, well, you know what, that, that probably makes you the best Douglas because if you had done all that, then you would not be from the truest sense a self-made man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, wow, what a, what a great story. Yeah. Well, I'm just I'm going to have to travel to um to Virginia to see you. Um yeah, maybe I'll do that for a June tease uh, cuz that looks really good. Um Yeah. And, uh, that's, yeah, yeah and that's the day before my birthday. So I could that could be my birthday present Uh-oh. to myself. To, and yeah. I've never been to Virginia. So that would be awesome. Come, yeah. you know, pour yeah, libations yeah. to the ancestors and see Frederick Douglass uh-huh. and some other folks. Right. That I really admire. Right. <laughs> yeah. Wow, that'd be yeah. Well, I'm cool. out, uh, I, I'll be actually in Utah this year. I'll be uh, oh. in uh, in Memphis, uh, in mm. uh, Michigan, Saginaw, Michigan. So I, mm-hmm. you know, I'm edging out that way. Utah. I've never been to Utah before. That's that's on my bucket list. So that's that's gonna uh-huh. be cool. And if mm-hmm. I can make it back out to California again, that'll be cool too. Cause I got I actually have friends in Oakland and uh, mm-hmm. and in the Bay Area. Nice, nice, yeah. So I was wondering if you could um, maybe take us out with 
a poem of some sort that, uh, you know, um, you want to share with us. Okay, yeah. i tell you what. Uh, this poem um, was actually inspired by um, um, June Jordan. Uh, there's a line oh. in the poem. There's a poem that June Jordan wrote called The uh, Poem to the Women of South Africa. Mm-hmm. And in that poem, uh, there's a line that says, we are the one we've been waiting for. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so somebody came to me. I was at a festival. This was long before Douglas. And they, they said, hey, I got this line, and I'm going to give it to you because I know you can do something with it. And uh, mm-hmm. they, they said that line to me, and I was like, wow, that is like, that's like a jewel. <laughs> and, uh, and so this is a poem that I wrote. We are the one we've been waiting for, and uh, it was actually just uh, just uh, uh, they published it recently in the uh, Washington Post. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is uh, on we. Okay. We are the one we've been waiting for. Just listen to yourselves, and we will wait no more. No need for another Malcolm or Martin when you stand ready at the door of greatness. Seeds sowed by sojourner have now sprouted in her likeness as truth. New answers to old questions now lie in the hands of youth. Man or woman in the mirror now serves as your proof that we are the ones we've been waiting for. Challenges to realize your worth, but not before we understand our birth right to the throne. Our fate is our own. We are the clones of pharaohs and queens. We do not stand alone. We are the people. To end war, we are responsible. To conclude the long wait, we acknowledge it's time now. Yes, we are the one we've been waiting for, a community of self, individuality, the wealth, that makes the collective unique, the reality that we hold the answers we seek. We need not lean on the crutch. Our government too much overrated. Our concerns too often debated and debated and debated and debated. Yes, we are the ones we've been waiting for. Just listen to yourselves and we will wait no more. No need for another Malcolm or Martin when you stand ready at the door of greatness. Seeds sold by sojourner have now sprouted in her likeness as truth. New answers to old questions now lie in the hands of youth. Man or woman in the mirror now serve as your proof that we are the ones we've been waiting for. Hmm. That's beautiful. Thank That's you. Beautiful. Yeah, I'm sure June Jordan, Jordan would love it. I, I really miss her. She's a beautiful, beautiful woman. Um, yeah. yeah, and uh, yeah. her work yeah. and her work with poetry with the, for the people, you know, sort of yeah. giving young Absolutely. people that vehicle to be able to tell their stories, not right. carry these things inside, but share out uh, and, you know, yeah. pain sometimes with such such beauty, right? Yeah, and then right. uh, similarly... You know, with the, um, uh, you know, um, Russell Simmons and uh, and and the brave new voices that that series, and then now you know with Youth Speaks and all these other folks 
bringing folks together, you know, um, and having all these young people battling words is like it's so so right. constructive and so right. Douglas, right? Like because he's an orator yeah. and poetry yeah. is or you know, oh, that's yeah. oratory art. <laughs> that's right. And, it's it's and part you know, of the evolution a, of uh, mm-hmm. of spoken word is right in the evolution of uh, of the spoken word throughout time, throughout mm-hmm. the African griot to Cab Calloway to the rappers. Mm-hmm. It's all in yeah. line. Right, right. And that's what people of African descent, you know, our ancestors, that's what we bring to the canon. Because before, you know, we started spitting, as they say, you know, because that's what we do. You know, we are like, we are we are storytellers and we are spoken word artists. And, and that is right. the tradition, you know, like it's documented. Like before we, before we started it, other people might have been doing it, but, you know, <laughs> we we refined right. it, finessed it, and it's now you know, you know a tradition. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And what it means for for youth, what it means for young people, all the uh, the thousands of kids who come through uh, brave new voices. Um, mm-hmm. You know, um, um, better your anger and fears flow like ink from a pen on a page or paint on a canvas. Than blood on the sidewalk. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. If if um you know people you know particularly people in uniforms if they learn how to use their words and not act in fear, you know. Right. You know, reach yeah. reach for the gun first because they're affected by the propaganda that their machines churn out, and and they're like are afraid, and so they reach for the gun. When they face sure. our people, as opposed sure. to sure. giving us the benefit of the doubt, which we never get. Sure, yeah, but it's, it's not crazy. only that though. It's, it's it's actually a system as well that incorporates mm-hmm. every every person in the system. So it really doesn't matter uh, if the officer is white. I mean, there, this is not an absolute statement, but but for the mm-hmm. most part, when you are in a system, you are caught up in the contagion of that system. So. Uh, the the, uh, the guys who drove the, the van uh, and killed, I think it was Tremere uh, Rice, uh, mm-hmm. half of those were black men. And so, mm-hmm. um, and so it's the system uh, that allows and perpetuates the behavior, right? So that's mm-hmm. what we mean when we say that, you know, you have to get at the system's uh, that have been established in America to affect change. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we can start with the heart, with the mind, those sorts of things, but we need people in place that that have the will, the courage, and the means to change systems, laws, knock down Jim Crow laws that are still on the books from, you know, the 19th century, um, overturn um, courts, um, I mean, really, the, the system, the judicial system, is based on golfing buddies. You know, when you have attorneys who walk into a courtroom and they have been on the court, they, they have been on the golf course. You know, this past weekend with the judge, then there's a system of nepotism uh, that goes on and favoritism that's not can't be qualified necessarily as. Uh, as racism, just, you know. So 
until you get uh, enough people at the table who are willing to stand up uh, and demand change, then uh, we really are not going to be able to affect change in the system and make all lives matter. Mm-hmm. Right, right, yeah, yeah. That's true. So, um, yeah, well, you know, you keep on telling these stories and keep on having these conversations and keep on, you know, <laughs> working with all these young people so they can keep it's on. Been, oh, it's been know, fun talking to you. <laughs> yeah, <been> yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, well, looking forward to having uh, another conversation. Maybe this time we'll see if um, uh, Mr. Douglas has some time and we can just have him on and and let him talk yeah. about, you know, 2019, like, oh, my gosh, 2019. You know, how was 200? <laughs> now 201 coming up, right? <laughs> right yeah, right. and what he's going to be up to. You know, what, you know, what kind of clarion calls is he, like, you know, sort of, composing, you know, as as the one one year ends and the next next breath opens up with new possibilities and opportunities for yeah. our people yeah. and for all people. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, cool. Yeah. Well, it's been really lovely because we've been talking about getting together, you know, and having a conversation, Mr. Richardson, for a minute. So it finally happened, yeah. which is great. <laughs> I can't. Yeah, I can't wait to uh, share the podcast of this uh, to uh, to the people who follow me and uh, oh, and uh, you know yeah. So make sure make sure you share that with me so I can share it with uh, everybody. I will certainly do that. I will do that as soon as um, I wrap up this this uh, broadcast. I'm going to go out with a song by the guest who was in the studio, um, Martin Luther McCoy, and uh, yeah, and I'll send you the link. Right. Thank you. <laughs> All righty. Well, you take good care. Have a good rest of the day, and Happy New Year, and Happy Kwanzaa, and you know, um, to our to our our um, our honored ancestor uh, Frederick Douglass. You know, Ashe, and Happy Birthday. Ashe, Ashe. Thank you. You're welcome. So we're gonna go out with Martin Luther's rendition of Sarah Smiles. 